I, I get the feeling from uh, our conversations over the years, I'm pretty sure I'm correct in this, that not one of the three of us has ever actually been the subject of an off-field landing. Is that right? Um, no, that's not right. Well, in a, in a yeah, okay, David, but not in, a, not in a traditional aircraft. You've done in ultralights? Ultralights and light experimental. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, light experimental. What did you do? I didn't, I'm not sure if I've heard this story. Uh, well, I was in a, uh, a little kit built clone of a 150, uh, when it had one of the early Rotex 80 horsepower engines with a gear drive that, uh, gear reduction drive that wasn't exactly at the peak of maturity. And it basically left us with power, but no thrust. And we put it into a, uh, we put it into a, uh, a, I think it was a sod farm, actually. Mm-hmm. Either that or a golf course where they hadn't put holes and fairways in yet because it was just acres and acres of big green field. And we towed it over to the nearest road and called for help, and help came, and we loaded it on a truck and went away. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, but yeah, it, so. it was about as uneventful as, as uh, you can hope for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we we had a a, a a prop that was windmilling, and we shut the engine down because it didn't want to idle right with no load on it. Uh, shut that puppy down and uh, just kind of flew a big box pattern. And when we were sure that the next turn would put us into the wind, uh, rolled out level and landed normally. Mm-hmm. Laps, you know, soft field. We weren't sure how firm the field was going to yeah. be. What it- what ended up being the nature of the failure? Did the, uh, the gearbox. The reduction gearbox. Yeah, the reduction gearbox. Uh, it just came apart. Uh, I think, actually, a shear pin failed in it. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that makes sense. It, 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 I never really got the complete uh, uh, post-mortem on what broke in the gearbox, but at the time, they were, they, they were not well thought of. Mm-hmm. And Rotax was in, busy in the midst of creating an upgrade that would uh, stop the, the, the what was becoming a fairly routine failure pattern at yeah. about 125 hours or something like that. These reduction uh, gear boxes have always struck me as being a bit of a weak link in the powertrain. Am I right about that, or are they better now? Or Oh, they're a lot better now. Yeah. Uh, but remember, we've been using gearboxes on airplanes for decades and decades and decades. Uh, yeah. The uh, Japanese Zero used a reduction drive. Some of our GA engines use reduction drives, uh, mm-hmm. geared, geared engines, uh, they call them. Uh, they don't have to be. It's not really rocket science to yeah. reduce the speed of a pinion through a, a larger diameter gear and uh, re- you know, reduce the speed of a propeller through that kind of setup. Uh, but we went through this stuff with belt drives, with cog drives, with gear drives, uh, and the Rotax reduction drive is a fairly sophisticated piece of equipment. Uh, much, much better now. I, I, I haven't heard of a gearbox failure in years now. Hmm. I had a buddy one time who had it into his head to try and uh, he he had a long easy that he had built himself that he loved justifiably, and uh, he had it in his head to he he was going to retrofit um, a surplus. 
uh, a- API, APU, excuse me, API is something else, APU uh, uh, jet turbine engine uh, to power his long easy. And uh, obviously oh, the geez. turbine was, yeah, that was sort of my reaction throughout the entire process. Um, and uh, he was trying to come up with a reduction gear that would, uh, that would uh, take the uh, turbine RPMs and, and bring them down to prop RPMs. And uh, we were all pretty dubious about this whole thing. And fortunately, he never got it beyond the test stand stage as far as I know but uh, uh, but it, it always made me wonder about these reduction drives so uh, David when your reduction drive failed did it fail gradually or suddenly oh it just went away so it went wh- away we were flying we were flying at a fairly lower low power setting because I was getting ready to test the stall characteristics of the airplane with the traditional you know uh, bring the power back to idle turn into the wind one knot per second deceleration through pitch and uh, all of a sudden, the engine started to spool up when uh, nobody had added power, and the uh, sink rate got more pronounced. And uh, looked down and said, "Wow, that shouldn't be at four thousand RPM. It's back at idle. It's let's shut that puppy down." And in the meantime, the prop continued to windmill. Yeah, I'm and wondering. props don't usually windmill on Rotax nine twelves when you shut them off. Right. Yeah. I'm wondering what your reaction, you know, if you will, emotional reaction was, you know, in that kind of moment when you're realizing, okay, we're not going to be able to go a lot further here. Oh, well, I'm not sure that I could tell you. Uh, My first reaction was, oh, look, there's a big field over there Mm -hmm. and we'll point it in that direction. Um, My second reaction probably was along the lines of here we go again, because uh, bell draft failures and other gear reduction system failures. This is back in the mid '80s. Mm-hmm. Were common enough that I actually practiced engine off approaches with most of these airplanes I demoed. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd get in the pattern of the airport. We'd get a couple of thousand feet above. We'd make sure there was no traffic conflict, and shut it off. Yeah. So it was kind of a non-event. So, Jeb, how about you? Now, I'm pretty sure, am I right? You have not had an off-field landing, right? I've not had an off-field landing. Uh, I, the closest I've ever come, well, there's two occasions where I came close to an off-field landing. The, the, the purest one, you know, weighted on the off-field side uh, was during my primary training. Um, we're out, you know, doing air work and whatnot, and, and an instructor pulls the throttle, simulate the dead stick landing. Okay, fine. He says, you know, uh, aim for that you know, aim for that field over there. I said, all right, fine. So, you know, maneuvered for the field and, and in fact, um, you know, had the field made and um, reached over to push the throttle up to go around. And he says, no, 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 no. He says, says uh, go ahead and land the airplane. I'm like, are you crazy? He says, no, 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 no. I says, I got it. And, he's, and he lands the airplane and, 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 I, and we ro- we're rolling out and I look up, up and there's a windsock. And uh, what it was, it was a private grass strip of uh, someone he knew uh, in in the area. So I mean, the the um, you know, a this was practice. B this was a, a more or less prepared strip, so right. it wasn't an a, a pure off field landing. The, the other occasion, of course, was what well, ended up on pavement. Right. Uh, yeah. Ended up with you know pavement with numbers on it. Now, and I, I've not had a, an off-field landing. Um, I've told the story about how my failed simulated off-field landing almost caused me to bust my check ride, but uh, uh, that's a different kind of case. So I don't know. There was another. There was another episode where I had a, a Skyhawk with probably carbides, 
um, descending out of 9,000 feet on a, on a spring day and, and whatnot. And it was, you know, I was talking to ATC and I said, you know, he's like, there's a highway, there's, you know, a bunch of other stuff around and, and, uh, whatnot. I said, well, you know, we're going to try to make the runway, um, no delays. He says, no problem. You're number one. You need the equipment now. Uh, they, they rolled the equipment anyway. And, you know, we landed okay and taxied in on our own power and, and had a had a mechanic look at it, couldn't find anything wrong and, and took off and flew home. Um but uh, you know, that was that was again, that was just probably car bias, although, you know, I'd I'd pulled heat, you know, for the letdown and, and all that kind of thing. So yeah, you know, Well and you also it. had that little engine disruption uh near the Florida Georgia border, wasn't it? Yeah. But you made an airport for that. Right. right. Yeah. Right. That's what I say. I made made a made a piece of pavement with numbers on it. Right. Um, yeah. So but, do you have any notable friends or acquaintances who had off field landings? Any any stories there, I wonder? I, well, I had one. I I had yeah, a buddy I, let me go, go quickly because mine's not there's not much to my story. Um and that is that I had a buddy uh uh and I say had because he's just he's a California friend who I haven't seen in many, many years. And he had a beautiful Navion that uh, was actually literally an award winner from Oshkosh and uh, obviously took great, great care of it. And it was very sad to discover one time that uh, he had power, you know, kind of the, st- the textbook case had a power failure on takeoff and uh, and uh, set it down straight ahead into a field and almost came out of it with no real damage, except that he rolled out into like a fence of some sort, a barbed mm-hmm. wire fence mm-hmm. and and banged up the plane a little bit. Well, it, it did require some some repair. Uh, over a, lo- a relatively long period of time, but he did manage to get it back in back into uh, into good shape and flying again. Um, and talking with him later, you know, I, I keep you know, I'm always curious about this the the emotional moment when you know you realize that you know the airplane's gonna you know not gonna fly for a lot longer, you know, or not gonna produce power for a lot longer. And uh, and you know, and he was like very calm about it and then you know his biggest emotion after the fact wasn't that he had this event was that he hurt the airplane against the fence you know exactly. and, well, you, you remember it's been i don't know four five six months we we talked about the um guy out in utah or something who uh uh landed his jabiru um after an engine failure and or maybe it was that guy maybe it was somebody else but he was wrestling with the engine problem Okay. And then the engine engine went ahead and quit. Right. And he noted the the clarity of the moment where he didn't have to worry about trying to get the engine to run again. He just had to put the thing down, something that he knew how to do. Yeah. Yeah, no, so, I remember that story. He, he was he was actually relieved yeah. uh in, in that in that event. Um you know, I, I certainly kinda I kinda get that. Um I kinda had the same thing in my little my little whoop de doo where uh I'm not worried about the engine anymore. Let's let's fly the airplane. Yeah, let's right. get it on the pavement. I can see the pavement. I can make the pavement. Let's worry about flying the airplane. The engine will take care of itself. Yeah, yeah, really. yeah. That's one of the that that's it, an engine ain't stopping for whatever reason. And I right. think the most common reason is because they don't run well on empty tanks. <laughs> don't have any fuel. Uh, but uh, it it does really focus your mind. I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it really focuses your mind because you only have one thing left to do, uh, and that's land the airplane at the best possible well, location. You know, and part of it too, and part of it too, I think, is um, the landing, the actual landing, off field landing part of it is something for which we've all been trained. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the engine troubleshooting. Yeah, we've been trained to do that, but always with an, a running engine. 
and one that we know or we hope anyway, nine times out of ten, is going to come back. Um, but even that's kind of a hit or miss thing because we don't know if if there's an engine problem, you know, unless it's purely mechanical. We don't know if you know switching tanks or, or switching mags or or carb heat or alternate air or different throttle position, different mixture position, whatever is is going to restore it. So we're busy. We're doing trial and error. We're doing is this better? Is this worse? Um, whereas, the, and, and we've not really been trained on that with a broken engine or a failing engine or or an engine with a with a with a real problem we have however been trained to make a dead stick landing yeah yeah and we and we've done dead dead stick landings albeit perhaps on 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 a on a prepared surface right but there is a difference between the two yeah yeah so. uh, and and the nice thing about a dead stick landing i mean once you've got everything done is it's essentially the same as every other landing with one minor difference. There's no go around option. Right, right. You're not and taking it's off. Like anything. every sailplane pilot, every hang glider pilot knows that feeling. You get right. no go arounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is going to be a little bit different episode. Uh, we're going to just talk about off field landings this week. Uh, and uh, oh, really? Yeah. So we got about a half a dozen of them, and uh, uh, you know, I don't know. We'll see what comes of this. But uh, Sh- should we like define off field landing for? Maybe we will. But first, we're going to do this. Welcome, folks, to episode 295 of Uncontrolled Airspace the General Aviation Podcast. We're going to be hearing a little bit of background noise throughout the day, but it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's not really no good noise. background noise. That's yeah, right. this, is, right. this is the best seat in the house. Right. We've got Skyriders now. We've got Skyriders now. we got Skyriders now. Skyriders now. Does that say UCAP? I can't. It's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in sight, clear around. Turkey Vegetable Ground, good afternoon, sir. Taxi via Foxtrot and Delta. We're recording this episode on uh, Monday, July. Oh, I'm sorry, it's not Monday. It's Thursday. <laughs> Thursday, July 5th, 2012. It felt like a weekend yesterday, didn't it? I know, it did. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm joining me here in the virtual hangar, my two good friends. Uh, Jeb Burnside's out there. He's talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How are you doing this morning, Jeb? Doing well, uh, sipping my coffee, kind of licking my wounds from the holiday, and uh, uh, looking forward to. Uh, uh, looks like a great day here. It's going to be a hot one, but that's okay. Uh, we're we're kind of into the, the summer doldrums here, where it's it's kind of hot and and whatnot in the morning and early afternoon. It starts to cloud up a little bit. We get a little bit of rain and, and cool off the afternoon and have a great evening. So, yeah, uh, yeah. We had some serious thunderstorms come through Lookout Point yesterday afternoon. It was cool. It was just exciting. Hmm. We had a, some hmm. good ones, yeah. Yeah, we had we had some weather come through here yesterday, but uh, uh, there was a little bit of rumble. But uh, typically, you know, we don't get too much lightning around here. Yeah. Well, there was a period last evening where it was hard for me to tell whether or not it was the thunderstorm and lightning to the left, which is to the north, or the fireworks, or it was my neighbor's fireworks to the right. Uh-huh. We have uh-huh. a neighbor who's one of these guys who kind of, kind of, kind of skirts the uh, the regulations as far as fireworks is concerned, and uh, I'm and shocked. Put, shocked. Puts on quite a show on. Uh, on, on certainly on the fourth, but uh, numerous times throughout the summer. Anyways, hey, also here in the virtual hangar is Dave Higman talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. How you doing, David? How is your fourth? Uh, quiet, except for the noise. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, you know, it was. Uh, it, it, we were we we were blessed with a, a, a brief respite from hundred degree weather. Uh, there were lots of uh, good boomy. 
uh, fireworks celebrations and uh, big, big crowd at my neighborhood association's pancake breakfast. Uh, saw a few airplanes on the uh, on the airways uh, out practicing yesterday and enjoying the holiday and. Uh, and all in all, it was, uh, well, it actually sounded like what I've always imagined Normandy sounded like the night of June 6, 1944. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, okay. No matter which <laughs> quadrant I pointed my nose, I could hear fireworks. Yeah, I know. Jeb, go ahead. Yeah, the whole pancake breakfast thing seems to be like a regional deal. Um, you know, your HOA is doing it. You're, 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 uh, you got Ponca City. Airports nearby. I, what, what, is pancake batter really cheap out there? What's what's going on with that? <laughs> well, there's pancake batter. It's a really good social way to uh, raise some money. Uh, pancakes are cheap. Uh, plus, we're close to the source of the sausages. So. <laughs> the the <laughs> okay. source of the sauce. All right, never mind. Uh, no, right, we're never not even mind. going any further yeah, there. I, uh, yeah. ah. So we got a bunch of off-field landings here. Let's see. The first one is uh, from my old stomping ground uh, near Watsonville, California. Uh, I got called. This was called to my attention by our buddy Will Hawkins uh, from uh, the uh, Pilots Flight pod log podcast and, and once upon a time from the student pod log podcast and more these days the uh, director of the uh, forthcoming uh, pilot story movie which we're looking forward to anyways will sent me an email saying uh, we just had an off-field landing here near watsonville um and you guys have a link to it here we don't have an awful lot of information about this one at least from the news stories um apparently a uh, a uh, a uh, parachute a jump plane uh, returning from uh, from uh, you know letting go I don't know what's the right term um, releasing some jumpers I guess I don't know uh, had some sort of engine failure and landed in a field uh, over near uh, Watsonville Airport um, there's not a lot here what's the you know this is the uh, from the Mercury News which is the big newspaper there in San Jose California plane from skydiving company crash lands in Watsonville area orchard a pilot made an emergency landing in an apple orchard off Freedom Boulevard on Sunday afternoon I know Freedom Boulevard is actually very close to the airport and walked away from the impromptu landing without significant injury there's not a lot here in the story I asked Will if he had any follow-up information uh, Will wrote to me, he said, the plane looks like a loss, but the pilot was just fine. Basically, this is a Skydiver 182, so you know that those engines are run pretty hard. My guess, and only a guess, Will writes, is it got super cooled and quit. The pilot found a good spot to put her down and did so. The cool thing, Will says, is that this is a pretty densely populated area with some farmland, but he found a place away from people and property. It was an apple orchard, so the plane got pretty banged up. I think it will be scrap, sadly. That's from Will. That's a shame. Yeah, I know. Interestingly enough, that doesn't show up uh, on the NTSB's uh, preliminaries right now. Yeah, well, is it long enough ago? It's... uh yeah, well, that's the thing. I'm sure it's a timing thing. Uh, yeah, June 25th. They just haven't had a chance to, yeah, to right. plug it into the uh, into the uh, list. There's uh, a thing on the 25th uh, is a um, um, Sokata TB21 uh, in uh, Gold Hill, North Carolina, which was a fatal. Right. I'm looking at, uh, while I'm here, I'm looking at uh, the FAA's prelims. And this was a 182, according to Will. Yeah, and it might have been the 24th, might have been the day of the... Uh, the accent because the newspaper piece was the 25th so okay well, let's see you know what what that brings up here uh yeah there's no 182s in that time frame in the ntsb data yeah. 
So. Uh, let me go back to FAA. Uh, talk among yourselves. Okay. Uh, uh, I see it. And it did it on, it says the article said a Sunday afternoon. Uh-huh. So, which would have been the 24th, like Jack said. Oh, wait, you found yeah. it, Jeb. What's it say? Yeah, I found it. Uh, aircraft experienced engine failure and landed hard in an apple orchard near Watsonville, California. One crew, um, un- uninjured crew, uh, got the end number. Um, let's see, substantial damage uh, to the aircraft. Um and that's basically all it says yeah. uh, of interest. One of my questions yeah. out of this is, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the fact that these skydiving aircraft and and also glider tow planes uh, get a, are used differently than than your average, uh, you know, uh, small aircraft, uh, personal aircraft. Yeah, it's all about ups and downs, you know. <laughs> and I'm wondering whether or not they're subject to any sort of different maintenance practices or inspection practices or anything like that. Do you guys know anything about that? Well, there's the 100-hour inspection that comes with having an airplane in a commercial operation. Right. But my rental aircraft used to be subject to that, my 150s. So is is this. Yeah. uh, Jeb, go ahead. And a 100-hour is really only just an annual inspection, just done more frequently. Mm -hmm. Right. Is a 100-hour a complete annual-like inspection? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, pretty close, Um, yeah. Um, again, it's just it's just being done more frequently. The, yeah. uh, um, you know, the, the, there's a I don't know how to how to really broach this or, or explain this, but uh, um, jump planes or, or um, uh, you know even some other aircraft that are designed or being used, I should say, for for you know uh, climbs and then and then descents. You've got you know a period of very high power and, and relatively low cooling. Um, while the aircraft climbs to altitude, then it, um, you know, the, the jumpers jump, um, and the air, the power is pulled off, and uh, the airplane, you know, basically descends at an optimum rate, or sometimes uh, just a very fast rate, depending on the frequency the uh, jump zones wants. Uh, and you've got a situation where you've got sustained high power with relatively low cooling, i.e., a hot engine, and then the power comes off. And the the descent is uh, at low power, so there, there's maybe too much cooling. Um, in the speculation, you know, from Will and, and perhaps from some others, is that um, you know that prolonged descent at a relatively low power setting uh, with too much cooling, the engine got too cool. Uh, 182 is carbureted. Uh, yeah, they are susceptible to carburetor ice. Um, I, you know, I'm not going to second guess, you know, something that happened recently and we have very little information on, I don't, you know, there could be any right. number of other, uh, other reasons for this. Oh, uh, it could be like a fuel pump tanking right. out on you. Could uh, be, uh, the, the tank unported in a, you know, you know, um, a nose down because I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so, no one does. So I'm not hearing that you guys are aware of any sort of special inspection rules or requirements for these kinds of aircraft, other than the routine, you know, commercial or used commercially 100-hour thing. No. no. I, I think there's some best practices recommended by the organizations that support this in uh-huh. terms of what you look at on a daily basis before and after you use them all day in these jobs. But uh, I've never heard of or come across anything required by the FARS specifically for this. No. 
Yeah, because these jump guys, I mean, uh, maybe this is just a special case, but I, I've seen situations where these jump pilots come down. I mean, you talk about coming down. I wouldn't characterize it as optimally. I would characterize it as maximally. I mean, I've. Yeah, that's what, that's what I meant to say. You know, these things, these guys drop the nose and, and just come down. You know, I mean, I remember one classic or for me, one really memorable example was I was hanging out at uh, where was I hanging out? Um, um, Hollister, California, which is a very active uh, jump operation. And uh, and on the CTAF, we heard one of the jump planes describe that he was returning. And he described himself as being on, I think he said, I'm on a high left base. And so we're looking for him and we can't find him anywhere. And we later discovered that he was at a 3,000 foot high left base yeah. and uh, coming down fast. All right. You know, and these guys know how to fly these airplanes. They, they you know, because they'll come down fast like that and then, you know, arrest their descent, you know, at the right moment and just kiss the ground with them once they get down. But well, you know, if he flew it, it like a jump plane I used to see pretty regularly in Pennsylvania, that high left base was never arrested. He flew right. through the base and turned final, and only on final did he finally start to arrest his descent rate. Oh, oh yeah, uh, that's it, to the landing. I mean, that high left base was all the way to the runway. Yeah, no, I that's sort of what I was picturing. Yes, so uh, these guys fly these airplanes, you know, and and I don't know if tow pilots, if glider tow pilots, are the same. They, how high does a tow re- glider release usually happen? Probably not. As high as a jumper, you know, jumpers yeah. twenty five hundred to three thousand. Yeah, yeah. So the tow guys don't have to come down as dramatically necessarily, but uh, um, so it, it's yeah. You get no points for being taken so high that uh, you know, unless you're in a training environment and you want the student to have a maximum amount of time to feel out the sailplane and try to find some lift uh, for the you know qualified sailplane pilot. Uh, usually, they pay more. Or there's a possibility of paying more the higher you go. So right, let's right. take it up to where the lift starts and cut me loose, and I'll take it from there. Yeah. Right. So congratulations to this uh, Watsonville jump pilot for getting on the ground safely, and according to Will, for managing to kind of thread the needle and get you know avoid some homes and some structures and mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, and hope you weren't too sore the next day. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Really. Next one we've got here is uh, from. Uh, well, at first I thought this was USA Today because it's got the big word today on their website, but it's apparently actually the Fort com website, probably the local newspaper. Plane makes emergency landing near Fort McMurray. Uh, the occupants of a small private plane that was forced to make an emergency landing Thursday afternoon are unharmed, and the pilot of the Cessna 337 brought the plane down after running into engine trouble. I don't know why that metaphor... It's not a 337. Is it? That's well, not a 337. The no. picture. I don't know, maybe, is, but... Uh, what do we think it is? Can you make it? Oh, yeah, that doesn't look like... It's that almost a, looks like a... Skymaster. Looks almost like a Cub. Oh, is a 337 a Skymaster? Oh, it's definitely yeah. not a Skymaster. Yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. not a Skymaster. Yeah, right. Um, pilot took... pilot The pilot and co-pilot, which I like that line, too. This is clearly one of these mainstream media things. They don't quite understand what they're writing about. You know, but the, the pilot and co-pilot took off from Fort McMurray and were flying towards Buffalo Narrows, Saskatchewan. Oh, that's right. By the way, this is in uh, Canada. Yeah, I was going to say, this is in Canada. This is so. in Canada. Um and the pilot ran into engine problems. Uh, there's that metaphor again. You run into engine problems. I don't know what I think about that. Uh, forced to make a soft landing in a marshy area south well, of... Well, it looks like it's on floats, too. It, it does, does look, look like it's on floats. It does float. look like it a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so he um, just needed deeper water, and that would have been a no issue. Yeah. But the, the spine of the fuselage looks very distinct. Like, the, it, it's, it's a very interesting... I don't... What is that airplane? Is that... Uh, I'm not sure that you're not just seeing the 
the the trailing edge. You're looking at the. Uh, right. Oh, I see. What I'm, yeah, you're right. I'm looking. I'm yeah, seeing the end of the. Yeah, uh, you're looking at the at yeah. the vertical stabilizer no, there. Right. That um, I, it's hard to tell from this angle. It looks like a 100 series Cessna. Um, the only trick there is it's got. Uh, it appears. Let me put it another way. To have some additional vertical stabilizer added to the horizontal stabilizer because of the floats. Oh, I see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then there's some something on the upper surface of the wing um, that could be um, lift hooks, uh, could be um, something else. I, I can't tell. I'm guessing, and I really hate to do it, I'm guessing this is maybe a 180. Mm-hmm. A Razorback 180. Um, I can't tell from this picture, though. Yeah. Uh, my question about this, and 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 my question, I, I recognize my question has little to do with this particular incident because a this incident is in Canada, so the NTSB isn't involved, and in this case, it does appear that the engine, su- the correction, the aircraft suffered some damage as a result of the whole thing. But my question is, is an off-field landing? automatically going to be investigated by the NTSB or you know if if you make a successful off-field landing and no damage no nothing the and, and, and even though you get in the newspapers and the newspapers always say you know the FAA will be investigating but is that absolutely Maybe. required not no. necessarily no, no right it has to do with with damage right is that right. basically you, you what go, it, go read you know what what is it for i'm sorry 830 part 830 right. uh, which is the NTSB's rules and um, you'll find that a reportable incident or accident, and those terms are defined by those, those regulations, involves um, damage to the air, uh, certain kinds of damage to the airplane, and or injuries to occupants or someone on the ground. Um, if those two thresholds are not met, it is not a, an accident reportable to the NTSB. Um, the I would you know my engine failure mm-hmm. uh, because it it a ended on a runway b did not involve any damage or or injuries was not reportable and I would speculate that there are a huge number of engine failures out there uh, on for which there is no record uh, because either the airplane ended up on a runway ended up at home plate for example. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, it was a, you know, a temporary thing, you know, a carb heat or, or a carb rise, I should say, something like that. Or the pilot uh, pulled it off and landed in a meadow um, uh, without any damage at all what, to the airplane or, or at least damage that was not reportable uh, or without any injuries. So, you know, the... Um, you know the event involving that jump plane in Watsonville. If if the guy'd come down on a golf course, um, and without a scratch to the airplane, we wouldn't know about that except for maybe the newspaper reports. It, it's now in the FAA database, and I'm sure it'll be in the NTSB database when they get caught up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in, in this event in in uh, in Canada, that look from the looks of it, that also would make the cut in the U.S. because of uh, what appears appears underscore. Uh, to be damaged to the floats. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but sometimes an off-field landing, sometimes an emergency landing, is just a landing. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, y- you know. And and so your engine failure, Jeb, where you landed on pavement, um, is wasn't 
reportable. Is there any sort of, you know, kind of, you know, best practice you should let the engine manufacturer know that you had this problem or um, not necessarily requirement, but uh, do do these kinds of problems get reported back to the engine people, you know, to, for whatever reason, just to kind of add There's to their... No, to, to, yeah, to, to my knowledge, um, there is no uh, protocol um, that either Lycoming or Continental have established for operators to report um, these kinds of failures. In my case, it was a it was a cracked cylinder, um, and that, in and of itself, you know, to be honest with you, I cannot imagine that um, in 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 my situation. Uh, the manufacturer of either the engine or the cylinder would be a, would have been the least bit interested. Yeah. Now, David, your uh, your uh, amateur bit built off field landing. I think that's what you described it as. Um, yeah. What, did 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 NTSB or FAA or anybody get involved in investigating that in any sort of way? No. And the uh, owner of the aircraft called the local FISDO, and the local FISDO said, "Well, it doesn't meet the threshold, but." You could send us information if you want, and that was pretty much. I, I don't know what happened after that. Uh, I know my gear up landing a number of years ago in the Comanche uh, was below the threshold for a reportable incident mm-hmm. uh, because it didn't do sufficient damage to anything and nobody was injured. Right. And now, are uh, are experimental amateur builds and LSA and or LSAs subject to the exact same rules, reporting rules, reporting requirements? I believe so. Yeah. I don't think there's anything in the yeah. regs that exempts you from uh, the reporting incidents in 8:30. Or yeah. the reporting requirements in 830. Uh, matter of fact, if you look at the uh, latest on this, uh, the form approved for use uh, last year, uh, under definitions, aircraft accident, this is from the NTSB Form 6120.1, Pilot Operator Aircraft Accident Incident Report. Aircraft ac- definitions, one, aircraft accident means an, in- an occurrence associated with the operation of an aircraft that takes place between the time any person boards the aircraft with the intention of flight and all such persons have disembarked and in which any person suffers, suffers death or serious injury or in which the aircraft receives substantial damage. For purposes of this form, the definition of quote-unquote aircraft accident includes Unmanned aircraft accident is defined by 41 CFR 830.2. So oh, this no, even covers UAV. <laughs> yeah, okay. When did that happen? Has that been in the wording? Last the lang- year. Language all along? Uh, last no, year. That was added that. last huh. year. Ah, sure. interesting. Okay. Getting, well, getting ahead of the curve once again. That's a whole other podcast episode right there. Okay, we'll have to come back to that one. But, uh, yeah, okay. So, uh, yeah, they, they sometimes they get involved, sometimes they don't. It's interesting. Well, there's it, it, something else about this that sticks out in my mind. Uh, and an A&P or an IA can correct me on this, but I believe that there are some reporting requirements uh, or some reporting opportunities that maintenance people have for certain types of things that they see in the shops, mm-hmm. like a separated cylinder. Uh, the FAA wants them to fill out a right. form where that right. came from, but that's not on the pilot's head. That's right. That, that's a that's a service difficulty report. It's an SDR. Um, the FAA has a very well defined uh, mechanism by which uh, maintainers, and I'm going to use that word advisedly because 
mainly it applies to uh, repair stations, uh, Part 140, certificate under Part 145. Uh, anyone, however, is free to submit an SDR, a service difficulty report. You can do it online. You can print out. You can download the form uh, and, and, and print it out, fill it out, and send it in. Um, it's it's a wealth of information to me, not just because you know I use it in the, in, in producing Aviation Safety Magazine, but uh, also just kind of getting a feel for you know there's aging aircraft issues, there's there's infant mortality issues, um, there's you know aircraft that uh, were designed um, um, and are being used perhaps uh, in in intensive commercial service. Where um, you know strange things can happen because of uh, you know every you know heavy people stepping on on, on, a, on a panel in the floor in a certain fashion, mm-hmm. or or uh, um, you know exhaust gases uh, causing corrosion in a, in a, on a wing spar. There's all kinds of little things like that that uh, you know the the um, uh, shin bones connected to the knee bone kind of thing right. that that that, uh, that pop up. Um, Again, though, there's nothing that prevents um, a mere human uh, from some, from submitting an SDR. Some organizations, like 145 repair stations, are required to submit uh, various uh, SDRs when they encounter something. That's pretty interesting. I didn't realize that exists. So, is that so? That information is publicly available. Is that what you're saying? And- oh yeah, there's you can you can go to the FA website. Um, and I'll kind of, I need to do this today anyway on, a, on another matter, but uh, you go to the FAA website and you can click on the uh, aircraft tab at the top mm-hmm. and then you can go into, um, well, let me back out of that. You go into airworthiness mm-hmm. um, and um, you can um, surf to the SDR page. And uh, there's a searchable database. There's a monthly um, summary uh, that the FAA publishes uh, that is, uh, to me, it's in, anyway, it's very interesting mm-hmm. uh, in that uh, you've got a human goes through and, and selects from that um, you know, interesting things that they've uh, not seen uh, before, perhaps, uh, or things, events... Uh, 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 findings with you know very good art. You'll see up close and personal the, the picture someone took uh, of of the particular occurrence. Um, it's, they're called aviation maintenance alerts. Is the is the monthly publication, and if you Google it, uh, you'll find it on the FAA website. Um, it's downloadable as a PDF. Um, then you've also got um, um, SAIBs, the Special Airworthiness Information Bulletins which are um, publications that are irregularly put out, put out as needed, I should say, by the FAA, um, regarding uh, events or circumstances that don't rise to the, to the level of an airworthiness directive, an AD, but are nonetheless very interesting, uh, might involve, you know, uh, uh, cracking or corrosion or, um, you know, there might be some failure <clears throat> in... Uh, uh, might be a, a, a software uh, issue, for example, with uh, some uh, manufacturer's products. The, the manufacturer, his or herself, may have put out a bulletin on this, but the FAA itself decides, well, you know, maybe we should, you know, make sure that we reach everybody. Yeah. Uh, there was an episode, um, I should say, an event <sighs> within the last year or so, where um, 
Australian uh, authorities, the Australian CAA or whatever it's called in Australia, had made a mandatory AD for um, uh, some beach bonanzas uh, relative to, I think, uh, some kind of cracking or corrosion on a, on a spar that they found. And um, the FAA uh, put out an SAIB, a service, uh, sorry, a special airworthiness information bulletin, but they did not. And, and I think they even said in the SAIB that we're not going to put out an AD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. David, you had something you wanted to add? Yeah. Uh, when mentioning the uh, addition of uh, unmanned aerial vehicles in the reporting requirements, I neglected to mention a couple of other things that the NTSB changed in the last couple of years on what are uh, reportable incidents now per uh, uh, Rule 830. Uh, for example... The NTSB has become interested in uh, learning more about failures in glass cockpits. So under the new rules, a reportable incident includes, quote, a complete loss of information, excluding flickering, from more than 50% of an aircraft's cockpit displays. And that includes PFDs, engine uh, uh, electronic flight information systems, uh, engine and crew alerting systems, uh, multifunction displays, or any other navigation displays. Uh, the, uh, the reportable incident now also includes an advisory, a resolution advisory issued by an aircraft collision avoidance system. Mm, I heard about that one. And, and, yeah. yeah, if they're in, if they're flying under IFR rules uh, and compliance with the advisory is necessary to avoid a collision. Uh, I think, like, well, if, let's see, if I am IMC, you damn right I'm going to comply. But uh, a, uh, a resolution alert from an ACAS system is, is a reportable incident. Interesting. Also, also, the escape of debris from anything internal to a turbine engine. Oh, okay. Excluding going out the exhaust pipe. Uh, that's reportable. And the loss of all or even a portion of a propeller blade, excluding damage due to ground talk, contact, must See, be reported to the NTSB. Now, it would seem to me that this turbine and this propeller thing would already be, you know, within the dollar value thing. So that, that would be reportable just to start out with. It's interesting that they call it out like that. But Well, uh, uh, turbine engine component exiting uh, the turbine engine may or may not. Uh, hit the dollar value as a percentage of the value of the aircraft. Oh, the dollar value is as a percentage. Well, okay, still. In okay. some instances, yeah. That's it's interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's I see it's like, like so many things in this uh, community, the uh, opening and closing answer is it depends. It depends. It depends. <laughs> well, we want to congratulate this Fort McMurray Canada pilot for uh, successfully getting whatever this kind of airplane was uh, on the ground safely, and uh, uh, good job. So, and yeah, it uh, looks like it slid in the marsh for a bit. Yeah, and oh. uh, and in this case, the uh, Canadian TSB is involved. So we may be hearing more about that later on. You know, while while we were talking, I looked to see if there was a, a, a database of preliminary reports similar to the NTSB's. But if there is on the TSB's website, I can't. Find you can't it. find it. Yeah. So, anyways. 
Next, we've got uh, a report from Valparaiso, Indiana. This is from the Daily Reporter, or the GreenfieldReporter.com website. A uh, small plane safely makes emergency landing on northwest, I think that's what they mean, NW Indiana Highway after apparent engine trouble. I think that if you've landed on the highway, you've got more than apparent engine trouble, but that's another thing altogether. Uh, Valparaiso, Indiana. A small plane landed safely on a highway in northwestern, yeah, there we go, Indiana, after apparently having engine trouble. No injuries were reported from the emergency landing on Indiana 49 near Valparaiso on Tuesday. plane came to a stop on the shoulder of a four-lane highway. and uh, uh, It's an L2. Yeah. So... uh, they were made for landing on highways. I know, right. and where there's no highway. So. Yeah, I know. So uh, the uh, it's, it, uh, this it, well, you know, it's, it's just I shouldn't be surprised. This is yet another example of mainstream media writing about airplanes. But uh, single engine plane is I'm quoting again. The single engine plane is a type built during World War II, and it was painted as a military aircraft. But the age of the airplane wasn't immediately available. And then for some reason, in boldface, the next to the last paragraph in this story says, Shauna Shauna Colley, whoever that is, uh, Shauna Colley tells the Times of Munster she thought the plane would hit her as it drove on the highway. So you had to have a little bit of excitement in this story. But it didn't. But it didn't, you know. So uh, anyways. Uh, it's the reason they call it a near miss, yeah. because you missed. Yeah. Jeb, didn't you do um, some research a few while back, a couple of years ago, into the occurrence of highway landings? Um, didn't you do, do some sort of informal survey asking for, for reports? Um, and if so, did you learn anything interesting out of all that? We, we, we kind of sort of did. We didn't really get much data out of it. Um, what we did get was um, uh, it's a fairly rare occurrence. Uh, a, I think it's overreported. B, those who have engaged in such don't really want to talk about it. Oh, okay. Well, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Now... Um, I know a, f- a friend of mine, um, um, gosh, this is probably back in the 80s. I've Somewhere I've even got audio, the ATC audio of all this uh, from it, um, where he, had, he was in IMC over near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, in, in, encountered an engine failure um, and started letting down, uh, whether by luck or uh, design, Ended up coming breaking out somewhere over I eighty one in Pennsylvania, and um, put the airplane down. Um, might have put the airplane down on the interstate, uh, and I think dinged a wingtip on a sign or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, um, the aftermath was probably as as interesting as the. Um, the event in that apparently the Pennsylvania State Patrol wanted to cite him for something. Uh, I don't know for what. I don't recall. <laughs> yeah. uh, for flying an airplane. Probably operating without a, a tag. Yeah, operating a motor vehicle on a Pennsylvania highway without proper registration or, or some, some nonsense like that. And he himself is an attorney. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the, the wiser heads prevail, let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, and the airplane, you know, as I recall, um, it was a Comanche. Uh, I think it was a 250 Comanche. The airplane, um, I think they took the wings off and trucked it out and flew again. You know, it wasn't any, it wasn't, you know, major damage to it. But, um, 
the whole landing on roads uh, thing, you know, there's there's the do you land with the traffic? Do you land against the traffic? Uh, what kind of road are you looking for? Uh, what if there is traffic? Do you still give it a shot? Um, do you go over under the overpass? Da 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 da. You know, there's all kinds of of. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people have sat around just as we are uh, in hangar flying sessions, saying, "What what are you going to do? And how are you going to do it? And and things like that." Uh, it depends. Yeah, yeah. The thing that makes me think a lot about landing on roads, and and I, I used to be really opposed to the idea. I used to think that this was just a bad idea. And we've talked about so many instances over the years that I'm kind of, you know, getting a little more comfortable with the idea. Um, but the 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 part of landing on a road that makes me most concerned still, um, obviously cars, and you got to make sure you're kind of fitting in with the traffic. But even if there's no traffic on the road, I worry about wires crossing these roads mm-hmm. um, because I just don't think that's going to be you know in the overpass thing. You know, you're going to see them and you're going to make a decision and whatever that decision is. But uh, but there could be wires crossing these roads that you wouldn't see until after you hit them, and uh, that that makes me well, nervous. There, there, there's a there's a I, I've been through this landing hang gliders outside the intended landing field, landing ultralights outside the intended landing land, the normal landing field, and I always hear this conversation about looking for the wires, which is a serious mistake. You don't look for the wires. You look for the poles. The poles exactly. show up. The wires don't show up very well. Mm-hmm. The wires will show up. Uh, very often at the point of it's too late to do anything about where you are and where they are. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you're along a highway, look for poles. If you're along a road, look for poles. Poles stand out very dramatically crossing farm fields and pastures. And, and when they pass through forests, there are right-of-ways cut for, so that they can pass through uh, unobstructed. And anywhere that they run toward a road, there's going to be a wire crossing the road. Don't look for the wire. Look for the poles. Yeah. yeah. So you do the same thing in yeah. Poland. Yeah. It, you know, I don't, obviously, you know, I have no experience whatsoever, and I'm, I'm talking completely out of some orifice here. But I, I kind of wonder also if in a low-speed, low-energy, low-altitude situation, um, you know, uh, catching a, a wire, you know, as you're trying to flare um, – uh, it would be a nothing burger. Uh, uh, it might slow you down. It might be like a carrier, you know, uh, hitting the third wire, third cable on a carrier landing or something like that. It might slow you down and arrest you. I don't know. Again, it's one of those it depends kinds of things. Definitely, I want to try to avoid hitting a wire. Uh, but if the option is um, a, a tree-lined uh, highway with rocks or, or something like that versus... Uh, one with some some wires strung over it. I'm going to definitely take the the, the wires um, and and try to avoid them. Yeah, yeah. And, and and something that guys I've talked to in the past uh, don't always seem to grok, or at least they don't they didn't ahead of time, is that if wires are imminent in your future, take a look and see if you don't have enough space to go under. Right. Instead of trying to outfly or pop over them, although diving and then flaring will sometimes get you over them but sometimes there's more than enough room to go under them uh but then that gets into a whole lot of it depends on what's on the other side right right you know if you you're going to accelerate going under them obviously because you're going to be putting the nose down but if there's lots of room underneath 
and open space ahead of you, then you can bleed off that airspace, uh, you know, on the ground if you have to. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, and it, you know, the average light plane. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm go back and look at mine, but um, uh, sitting on the ground, the the top of the vertical stabilizer is maybe eight feet. Um, typical light plane isn't that tall, all things considered. It can easily fit under um, uh, wires strung across the road. Um, to me, if I saw a bunch of wires, yeah, I'm not going to try to stretch the glide to go over those wires. I'm going to try to get under them and, I, and accept the slightly increased rate of speed, knowing that I'm going to be that much closer to, to putting the wheels on terra firma, and I'll take the extra couple of knots. Yeah, yeah. And so. You just brought up something really important, Chubb, uh, that occasionally we'll get a pilot in a forced landing situation uh, in worse trouble. And that's trying to squeeze the maximum right. distance out of the airplane. Right. Uh, out of what rationalization, I'm never quite sure. Uh, but my early training and my private pilot training all kind of pushed me in the same direction. Make a field with altitude and make that your field. Not the next one or the next one, right. but the field that you got made for sure, the one that right. you can actually spend a little footage, a little altitude, setting up your arrival, rather than just flying along fat, dumb, and happy, and dumb, until you run out of air, of air period. There's no points for maximizing glide. Yeah. Yeah. Go yeah, ahead, Jeb. I'm going to pull up something here that was um, in my um, uh, July issue of Aviation Safety, July 12. Um, that involved a fatal accident of an F-33 Bonanza. Uh, this was, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Dave, near you. This was in Perry, Kansas in July of 2010. Um, and um, what happened is you've got a guy who, who was in this Bonanza. It's a 33 Bonanza. He's um, uh, climbing out of his departure airport uh, near Kansas City and loses the engine at about 7,500 uh, feet MSL. And requested vectors to the nearest airport. Uh, da 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 da. Basically, uh, spent a lot of time and and uh, very scarce energy, um, twisting and turning, trying to find the nearest airport. And the upshot of it all is, came up short, uh, stalled the airplane, and died. Where if he had had uh, you know picked a field. Uh, uh, not a, not an airport field, but a field field, or a or a highway, or some other open space, uh, and stuck to that first plan, committed himself to that 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 initial plan of putting the airplane on that on that area. He likely would have walked away, and we wouldn't be talking about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway. there were some other things going on here. The guy, you know, um, it's not at all clear that. Uh, um, he did the the engine failure checklist, it, and and that uh, the air, the uh, uh, the airplane the engine could not have been restarted. Uh, but it's also clear that um, he he changed his mind two or three times uh, in in picking a landing zone. Yeah, that's, that's what I've always was trained. Don't you know? Once you make your plan, there's got to be a really good reason to change it because it's probably. Not a good idea to change it. Anyways, yeah. yeah. That, that, that's, go with what's a solid deal. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Anyways, our congratulations to this uh, Valparaiso, Indiana T-Craft pilot for uh, setting it down safely on the road and apparently not even hardly hurting the airplane at all. And uh, so, uh, nice picture of it. Well, you, you remember that video that we had just before Oshkosh, I don't know, three or four years ago. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, the airplane coming in for uh, the show, lost engine and landed on US-41 right over the top of a Wisconsin Highway Patrol officer. And you caught the video from the patrol car. And he put it down on the highway, and if it wasn't for a badly placed signpost, as in in the right-of-way, he would have gotten off without a mark. I know, I know. So, And, David, I'll have to thank you for the segue here. So, uh, yeah, police officers occasionally are on the scene and uh, for these kinds of things. Our next off-field landing uh, is an interesting one. This is from the examiner.net website. Let's see now. Independence, Blue Springs, and Grain Valley, apparently someplace in Missouri. And uh, so I'll paraphrase here a little bit. Um, a couple of police officers were uh, out on the road, uh, actually in, uh, on the scene of a car accident, apparently, when they noticed something unusual. One of them said, uh, that military helicopter's flying awful low. And the other officer said, what helicopter? <laughs> <laughs> and the officer says, I, says, I turned around and saw it coming down in a field. Uh, the story goes on to say, pilots from Whiteman Air Force Base were forced to make an emergency landing with their U.S. Army Apache helicopter in a field near Nolan Road and 44th Street about 3.40 p.m. on Thursday uh, while on a training mission over Interstate, Interstate 70 in Independence, the pilots noticed the helicopter's hydraulics were failing and immediately looked for a place to land. They put it down in a mm-hmm. small field uh, just west of the Nolan South Shopping Center parking lot. Uh, so it was a that, totally... That could be really bad to lose hydraulics on a bird that big. Yeah, so it turned out to be totally uneventful. They didn't actually lose hydraulics. They just saw a reduction in the hydraulic pressure, and they managed to land before anything went wrong. So apparently it was a totally under-control landing. Um, and uh, so, you know, I have a couple of observations here. Uh, my The first is, this is pretty snarky, but I'll say it anyways, um, and that is that, uh, you know, many, many fixed-wing pilots I know would consider just about every helicopter landing to be an emergency landing. <laughs> so uh, I don't know where the distinction is here sometimes, but... Uh, you know, well, let's, let's, there's that's that like, whole you know, thousands of parts surrounded by an oil leak thing. That's you know? like glider pilots. You know, every every landing is is uh, an engine out landing. Yeah, exactly. That's so, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I, I I had over 400 some odd hours and 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 many many hundreds of dead stick landings before I ever flew something that let me go around. Yeah, yeah. the it was a weird experience. Another one of the police officers' comments from this article I thought was a, kind of a, a little amusing or odd or I don't know what. He said, uh, uh, let's see now, uh, Miller, the, one of the police officer's name, Miller said, I drove over here and radioed in saying, hey, we've got a military helicopter in this field near Nolan South, and I don't know if that's supposed to be here or not. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> what the heck? Uh, is there, there's a helicopter landing in the field here. Is this like something going on? So uh, they reported the same. So the helicopter landed uneventfully. They apparently scrambled a uh, or, or sent out a uh, mechanical uh, team of mechanics or whatever, and they came Probably up. had a drone deliver some hydraulic yeah, fluid. Okay, don't go there. They, yeah, they, right. they sent out some mechanics, and they looked into the helicopter and either concluded that it was okay or repaired it, and uh, it, I guess it took off from the field and everything Here, was fine. Here, here's a question. Yeah. When they sent the repair crew with parts and, and people and all that, did they use a helicopter? <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> actually. That's an interesting question. Uh, 
but uh, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't say. Hey, hey, guys, I need you to run over uh, uh, near the uh, base there uh, at Nolan Road in the shopping center, but don't take a helicopter. Yeah, right. Cause, take a cab. Yeah, take a cab. Uh, so anyways, they, uh, they landed successfully and, uh, and, uh, you know, but it's gotta be a sensation here. This, this Apache helicopter. Now from the picture, it almost looks armed. This is a, uh, you know, well, from the, the story says it was uh, on an unarmed training mission. Right. Uh, but the picture definitely shows, uh, stores under the pylons that could be fuel. It could be dummies. It could be. Oh, yeah, well, the picture, could, and that's not dummies. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it could be launchers, but not loaded. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, they've got a, um, ooh. Yeah, uh, oh, will the picture blow up here? What is it doing? Well, and, yeah. and they'll load those puppies up oh, weight-wise yeah. to help keep the training uh, experience yeah. as, as close to real as possible. Yeah, at the very least, the launch tubes are here, whether or not there's anything in them. And, yeah, uh, Got to, Probably a couple of twelve packs on ice. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in case they have to make an emergency landing, where, where you know they should be carrying, you know maybe the hydraulic pump and some fifty six oh six. Yeah, yeah, right? Well, yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, this is a cool. These are these are like scary helicopters. Not scary, scary looking. They're intense. They're they're very uh, very. What's the word I want? Aggressive, uh, uh, menacing. Yeah, menacing. Very intimidating. That's the word I was looking for. Oh, you and should yeah. see them. Up close when they're flying the well, training missions out in Arizona. I, I, I sort of have. Um, I actually one of the one of the most exciting things about my long cross country way back when when I was doing my training was that I landed at where was I landed? I think I want to say it was Santa Monica, uh, not Santa Monica, Santa ooh, San Luis Obispo, uh, where I was one of the stops on my long cross country. And uh, while I was sitting on the ramp catching my breath, uh, uh, waiting to continue, um, a, uh, a one or two Apache helicopters came in the pattern and came down and actually touched. I don't know if they touched down or just did a touch and go or whatever it is you call it for a helicopter. And uh, I remember I noted it in my logbook because it was so cool. Apaches in the uh, in the in the pattern, and uh, that was that was pretty cool. So yeah, they're they're very uh, very interesting looking airplanes, and it's almost as if they were designed to look menacing, so that uh, you know. Put some. I, I think that's a result. Put some fear of you know whoever into yeah, the into the enemy, right? That's a happy coinkydink. Yeah, oh. that's right. That's right. <laughs> and this one's got one of those funky. Uh, I don't know. Is that a radar dome or something like that? Some sort of radar sensor device oh, up it's above. A, yeah, the, it's, it's it's an over the horizon uh, sensor right. array. Yeah, they'll, uh, so, they'll hover. You know, just just below uh, a ridge and let that right. stick up above the ridge, and they can map. You know, all the tanks. Uh, that are invading Western Europe. Yeah, uh, um, so it's and, literally and be able to shoot at them. Yeah. Uh, last time I checked, there weren't that going to be that many tanks that were going to invade Western Europe. However. Yeah. Well, okay. Once upon a time, that was a big concern. So uh, yeah. But you know, the flip side of which is, if you want to see what one of these things would look like, you know, the next generation, where they, you know, kind of take out the cockpit and just put in a bunch of electronics, and some guy sipping a soda in in Las Vegas is flying this thing, just go rent Terminator. Really? What? What's oh, yeah. Skynet, dude? Skynet. Uh, Skynet. I know. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, anyways, <laughs> hey, listen, we're reaching the end of our allotted time here. Uh, so already? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, we do have a couple uh, of shoutouts here. Like just yesterday. Yeah, I know. It was, as a matter of fact, uh, almost <laughs> yesterday. Uh, so uh, uh, we do have a couple of shoutouts. You guys, uh, let me do a couple of shoutouts here. Um, 
So, and, and I have two shout-outs that are belatedly, and I'm embarrassed that we didn't notice these uh, uh, in their proper time, but these are both things that, well, one of them is very important to us, and the other is kind of a nice thing that we should have noted. The first is, and the one that's very important to us, is that it turns out that around about episode 292 was the 200th episode that Jeff Ward has done our show notes for. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that's a moment that should not have passed unnoticed because Jeff has become a very, very important part of this podcast. And, uh, uh, you know, it's just it's a huge load off of, off of us to not have to worry about the show notes. And he just takes care of it totally on his own and uh, adds his own little personality to it, which is terrific, um, and occasionally drops us little notes about things we should talk to. Jeff has become a very, very important part part of this podcast even though you don't hear his voice and uh, and and we thank him for all of that help and we congratulate him on 200 episodes wow i mean he, you know just goes to show you but uh, thank you jeff man, for man, all the things man, you've done man has a high threshold for something he does, for, he does. yeah 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 high th- certainly for pain for something uh, yeah. for for blowing snow and and uh, um um a variety of other uh, characters characteristics but uh, thank you jeff thank you very much yeah, for yeah absolutely as i say at the end of every episode big thanks to jeff ward uh you guys want to drop another one in here or should i go on with the next one i've got here go ahead i've, I've got one that's not on the list okay uh, so the other uh, sort of uh, uh, event we should have noticed um, is that one of our fellow hangar flying or our, our uh, companion uh, hangar flying podcasts, the uh, the Stuck Mike Avcast, celebrated their first anniversary just recently. Um, and uh, they have steadily been doing an episode every two weeks since they began a year ago. Uh, as a result, they've just passed episode number 26 and uh, had their, their first anniversary as a hangar flying podcast. It's a really good one. I've said this before. If you aren't listening to Stuck Mike Abcast, at least from time to time, you should be because they, they talk about some really interesting things and some really interesting and fun people are involved. So congratulations to yeah. Smack, the Stuck Mike Abcast, for their first birthday. Jeb, what do you got? Um, today, uh, in, uh, according to my um, Google um, uh, email um, parade here, um, it has already occurred, although I cannot load it. Uh, I have not been able to load it here. I keep clicking refresh. Um, today, the French version of the uh, NTSB is releasing their final report on Air France 447. Mm-hmm. Uh, supposedly, it will uh, um, find that pilot error was at fault uh, when the pilot error was a factor. There were also some technical failures uh, aboard the A330. Uh, that resulted in the loss of Air France 447. Um, Film at 11, I'm sure we'll be talking about this some more, not only on the podcast, but in, in some of the uh, publications that we both that we all work for. Um, it, it'll be an, it, it's going to be a very interesting uh, um, um, dissertation, if you will, on, on this particular accident for any number of reasons. Just the idea of, of losing a transport category aircraft at altitude to the politics involved, um, to uh, uh, what would cause uh, the pilots to react as they did. Yeah. Yeah, it will be interesting to hear more details. Although I think we've pretty much gotten the picture of what they're yeah. going to say. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just a matter of how they say it and what they say. Right, right. So, David, you got anything? Yeah. No? Okay. One last, not one last time, but uh, uh, last thing I want to talk about on this podcast is to remind everyone that uh, we are obviously on our way to Oshkosh in a couple weeks. And uh, I I won't... I know. 
I, I won't go through the entire list of act, UCAP activities that you're going to see uh, at AirVenture this summer, but I do want to uh, reinforce one idea, and that is that we would love to see everybody, uh, if not in other times, um, at our uh, tie-down party, our annual uh, uh, so-called beer bust uh, that we'll be holding on Thursday evening during AirVenture uh, from 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, over at the uh, northwest gate, northwest pedestrian gate of uh, Whitman Field, uh, which is right near the... Uh, uh, Super 8 Hotel and the uh, Friar Tuck's restaurant and uh, we'll be right outside that gate uh, looking to uh, chat with folks and um, in addition to uh, socializing this year we are also going to record a, a full episode uh, probably episode 299 will be recorded that that evening uh, right there uh, on the lawn outside the uh, the uh, northwest gate so uh, we uh, hope that everyone who's uh, at AirVenture that day will have a chance to swing by and say hi and uh, share a couple of libations with us and uh, and maybe even participate in our episode. That's Thursday during AirVenture Week, 6 to 8, outside the Super 8 gate. All right, time to stick a fork in this one. Uh, uh, let's see now. Thank you, guys. Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, what you been working on? Anything fun? I'm working on the August issue of Aviation Safety Magazine. Uh, got a good piece in here on um, uh, airborne uh, collision avoidance systems, uh, what works, what doesn't, what are some of the, uh, what are the, some of the pitfalls. I've uh, got a really nice piece from someone named Higdon on, on uh, uh, how now is a good time to be out uh, doing some instrument uh, recurrency training, uh, getting ready for uh, uh, some of the more inclement weather we might find in the wintertime. And uh, I might even have something in here uh, uh, that might be of interest to readers, but who knows? Uh, uh, film at 11, we'll figure it out as we move along. Yeah, and where can people learn more about that stuff on the web and about you? AviationSafetyMagazine.com is a great place to start. You can uh, look at some uh, at least intros of past articles. You can subscribe. You can update your subscription information. All kinds of fun stuff there. Um, uh, JEBurnside.com is the personal website. Um, yeah, I'm on Facebook. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, you'll also find me sometimes on AEA.net and or AFWeb.com. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, what have you been working on? Well, we got something new in this month's avionics news. For the July 2012 avionics news, which is uh, 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 published by our friends at the Aircraft Electronics Association, uh, we have an article about uh, the many options available if you want to go uh, to a glass cockpit. Uh, in your airplane uh, from the uh, smallest to the largest and how you might uh, plan and, and uh, budget to do that. And we also want to remind folks that are coming up to Oshkosh that uh, while there, they could visit the AEA booth and pick up the free, nothing, Zada, Zilt, Zip, Zero Cost Pilot's Guide to Avionics for 2012-2013. Very cool. And in general, mm -hmm. where can people find you on the Internet, David? Oh, AEA.net is one, avbuyer.com, aviationsafetymagazine.com, and a couple of other clients who 
Well, that that's good enough. Google. <laughs> and I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, check out my uh, Kindle eBooks uh, on uh, on the Amazon.com site. You can go to Amazon.com/author/slash/jack-hodgson for information about that. Also, keep an eye on the uh, UncontrolledAirspace.com homepage, where we are uh, going to be putting announcements about our uh, Oshkosh activities and also about a brand new feature to uh, our. our our podcast that uh, we're hoping to announce sometime um, between now and AirVenture. Uh, and in general, look for me at uh, jackhodgson.com and check out my aviation blog at aroundthefield.net. As I said, and can't say it enough, big thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Roy Searle, Jim Goldman, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, did you have something you wanted to add? Well, you know, if you fly yourself to Oshkosh, you'll live longer because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. So we'll see you there. Hey, and that's enough talking. Let's go flying. AMFFN. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.